You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. My guest today has a pretty famous last name. But I have a very foggy memory. I think I must have been five or six years old of riding in the first boat the day they opened up the small world ride next to my grandfather and holding his hand. That is filmmaker and activist Abigail Disney. Yeah, Disney. Which would make her grandfather, Roy O. Disney, the co-founder of the Walt Disney Company and older brother of Walt Disney. Abigail's dad was Roy E. Disney. So I have this actually kind of formative memory. I'm convinced it's why I love going to the UN because it's like grown up small world, right? <laughs> it's in their like <laughs> national dress and it's just so exciting. Um, but I remember that so well because my grandfather loved that ride incredibly. And so I love it incredibly. And uh, it's just every aspiration of mine in life, you know, that we, that we can all get along. Despite Abigail's family history, she is actually not a fan of the Disney we all know. Back in 2019, Abigail wrote this op-ed in the Washington Post calling out then-CEO Bob Iger. She thought it was unfair that Iger took home $65 million in pay in just one year. Since then, Abigail Disney has become one of Disney's most vocal and prominent critics. She's lobbied for a reduction in executive pay. She's pushed for increased wages for Disney's low-income workers. She's asking for Disney to become a different kind of company. And her mission feels especially acute during this pandemic, as Disney has had to furlough and lay off tens of thousands of its workers. So today on the show, we're going to dive deep into Disney with a Disney and how Abigail thinks the company and really all of corporate America should change. Just a note before we start, the Walt Disney Company is a sponsor of NPR. All right, with that, before we get into everything, I wanted to ask Abigail Disney why she chose to speak out in the first place. It's, it's a hard thing, and, and it was a hard thing. I'm, you know, I'm 61 years old. I haven't really done this publicly about Disney specifically until recently because yeah. it was that hard to choose to, to go against my last name like that. Yeah. Because, yeah, there's so much love there. I mean, it was a place, I mean, yes, it was motivated by profits. It was motivated by, you know, a very narrow sense of American life and history that left a lot of people out and actively injured others. So, I'm, But it was also a place of joy. I remember a, going as a kid, exactly, loving it. Exactly, exactly. And that's the part I'm trying to get to, which is I stand there in front of those gates at that park and I watch those families go in. And I just think, how can you not see this as a social good? This is a valuable thing. This is an American thing. And if it didn't exist, we would be poorer for it. Mm. What was the moment it all shifted for you from that first happy Disney moment to where you are now? Was there a time, an event, a thing that began to shift your perspective on Disney? Um, hmm, that's hard because, you know, when things are complicated, a single epiphany is never really enough, right? Um, yeah. You need lots yeah. and lots of epiphanies since they build on each mm. other. But, but I know that when I um, went to New York City to start graduate school, it was h- the height of the homelessness crisis in the 80s. Reagan was in what office. What year? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it, New York City, you know, you can't dodge reality. So homelessness kind of smacked me in the face when I got to New York. And I was, I was just amazed at how comfortable everybody was with it. So that's when I started mm. sort of break off from the idea that that had nothing to do with me, 
And then, as you know, I spent a lot of time in graduate school, as one will when one's getting a PhD. <laughs> and so yeah. I was there for uh, when there was talk of building a history theme park. I don't know if you remember any of that in the 90s. And the academics went crazy. You know, let Disney have its go at American history. Oh, no, thank you. <laughs> and, and so, like, here I am in academia, but my last name is, like, you know, literally poison. And um, yeah. it made me ask myself, like, whose team do I want to be on? And if you, you know, if you pay <clears throat> attention when you go to the Hall of Presidents, if you look around Jungle Land and all the other kinds of awfulness, this, just the Song of the South alone is enough of a reason to know that there's a terrible legacy of racial injustice. And, 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 and this is not a question of looking the other way. So the Song of the South was not a question of looking the other way. This was a question of actively harming people. So hearing you come into that realization about some of the uglier truths of Disney, was there also a moment where just like the money, you began to see it differently? I was reading that you had said before that when you went to college, your parents were well off, but like not crazy extravagant. But then during the Michael Eisner era of Disney, yeah. they just got really rich and everything changed. Yeah. I mean, everything changed. You know, I've always, I have a credit card. My last name is Disney. So I give people my credit card and they react to my last name nine times out of 10. Yeah. And um, all my life up until the 90s, the reaction was this. Oh, how nice for you. Your family has created so much joy. Aren't you lucky? Isn't that wonderful? And then, like, is, is Walt Disney in your freezer at home? And do you know Mickey Mouse? And jokes like that. <laughs> so, so that was pretty the regular thing. And I thought I hated yeah. that. But what I hated was what came um, in the 90s, which was, you must be so wealthy. And and I and I and I brought this to the attention of of Michael Eisner, the CEO at the time, and others. And I talked to my father about it. I was like, "You're going to kill this brand. There's no way the brand can survive this." And and when people react to my last name on my credit card, you better bet that's a brand reaction. What was Michael Eisner doing that changed Disney and made it, you know, money right, bags? Right, right. Well, I, you know, I think of him as the gateway CEO. <laughs> Um, mm. be because the business community in the United States has been in transition for 50 years, you know, from one mm -hmm. kind of place to the place it is now. So mm -hmm. in the 90s, it was even a slightly less poisonous version of what we're dealing with today. But at the time, Michael was CEO. Of course, he was, you know, th there was so much when he came in as CEO that hadn't been done. The company was wildly undervalued on the stock market because it was being very poorly run. So, you know, they released the videotapes. I mean, you know, they hadn't released any of the classic films on videotape. Can you imagine just that in terms of revenues in yeah. turning the company around? So, of course, the company started making hit after hit. The animation department was completely, you know, revivified and everything was going great. That wasn't so terrible an association people had, but they were starting to see not love and family. They were starting to see, ooh, big bucks. And, and mm. part of that was because what was getting reported in the business media about how well the company was doing, part of that was the way Michael and others were rewarding themselves. Um, and uh. he was famous at the time for being sort of the poster child 
of really egregious executive compensation. I remember back in the 90s hearing how much money he was making. And it was the first time that I was like thinking about Disney and not just thinking about Mickey Mouse. Exactly, exactly. And so that really put a kind of a a smell around everything around the company. Didn't he used to put his face? Okay, yes. sorry to sidebar you here, but I would watch the <laughs> Disney movies like on Sunday nights yeah. and he would like do the intro sometimes. Yeah, yeah he would. Yeah, I remember that. And he was, oh my he goodness. Was Anyways, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> he was terrible <laughs> at it. Um, yeah, because like it just didn't, you know, Walt was not sort of kind of charming, you know, warm guy. But yeah, so this was a sign that Disney was going to just be a company like every other company. Mm. Um, and up mm. until then, there was a sort of a belief that Disney could be different. Disney was special. Mm. And, you know, my grandfather sort of was known for um, taking less money on a deal um, because it was the right thing to do rather than cashing in for everything he could possibly get from time to time or paying more for property sometimes in Florida when he was buying up the land than he really had to because some little old lady was, you know, going to be kicked off her land and things like that. So choices were made back in those days that other CEOs and other companies made because those were the norms at the time. That was what was expected. Coming up, we take it all back to Milton Friedman. Decades before the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, Marcus Garvey attracted millions of followers with a message of Black self-sufficiency and Black nationalism in Africa. For our Black History Month special series, The Seismic Influence and Complicated Legacy of Marcus Garvey. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR. So I asked Abigail Disney to help unpack the ways that business norms have changed how corporate leadership in the 80s and 90s underwent this ideological shift. And she told me that so much of it goes back to this op-ed written by the influential economist Milton Friedman. It was written in 1970 and published in the New York Times. The title of this op-ed? A Friedman Doctrine. The social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. That was the title. Yeah. What's stunning is how quickly... Because consider, it's only 1987, so only 17 years after that article, that you have Gordon Gecko saying greed is good, right? And that's the basis, that's the, that's the moral underpinning of the argument, that shareholder primacy. Everybody benefits if every business runs as efficiently as possible and makes as much money as possible. And, and you've got Gordon Gecko saying greed is good, and the audience is cheering. I was in New York. I watched it in the theater and the audience was cheering as though he was the good guy when he was the villain of the piece. Uh, you know what's it's interesting to hear you talk about how this concept of shareholder, you know, primacy came about in the 70s and 80s because what's entirely counter to that and might have existed more before that is the exact opposite, something called stakeholder primacy, where you think as much about the customers and the employees and the community as you do the shareholders. Yes. And, and I think we forget that that like ever existed. Yeah. And, you know, it, it comes from a, um, an almost absolutist material way of understanding the nature of the world, right? Because if you take out of business everything that is intangible, um, then you can't come to any other conclusion that then that shareholders matter and nothing else does. It, in order to believe that stakeholders matter, that your employees actually have more than just a contractual relationship with you, those ideas are based on intangibles, things like morals, ethics, 
beliefs in communitarian values. And right now, if you talk at all about mutuality, what you're dismissed as is a socialist immediately, as though there's nothing in between this pure individualism that we're working with now and Marx. There's no nothing on the com- you know continuum between those two <laughs> things. So, so, so fast forward. We began to see shareholder primacy uh, take precedence over stakeholder primacy in the 70s and 80s. The shift for corporations becomes profit, profit, profit. Now we're in 2021. You are campaigning for Disney to address that shift. Mm-hmm. What specifically are you asking mm-hmm. Disney to do? What I want Disney to do is to completely realign its um, practices uh, from a corporate standpoint around the idea that its employees are not interchangeable cogs in a machine. So there's there's something called the B Corp. Have you ever heard of the B Corp movement? No, tell me. So, you know, it's a a relatively small movement of businessmen and women and people in business schools and people who write about business who are trying to figure out how to certify and quantify the value of a business when you include all the values that aren't strictly material. So um, it's more than just what they call ESG, um, which is um, socially responsible investing. Um, it's, it's, it's putting all the pieces together, like where are you on the environment and, and are you really addressing discrimination and how are you treating your employees and how are you looking after the long-term interests of the community with your work? And is your product damaging to the people you're selling it to and all those things? And so people can apply for a B Corp certification and then there's this neutral third party that goes in and tells you, here are the things you have to change if you want to certify as this social benefit corporation. And I would love to see Disney become, tomorrow, the biggest B Corp in the world. It would be a massive mm. change. It's asking something crazy of them. And I don't see yeah. why we shouldn't ask something crazy of them. Wasn't it crazy for them to exist in the first place? <laughs> Wasn't Mickey Mouse itself as an idea crazy? Yes, Come exactly. On, Imagine mouse. Walt said, let's buy a bunch of Oars Groves in that like tiny podunk town Anaheim and build a crazy imaginary place there. And people will drive yeah. to it and spend money to be there. Yeah. I mean, all of it was nuts. Stay with us. Coming up, we break down the disparity between the Disney C-suite making millions and the low-income Disney employees being laid off. There is so much Black excellence in the sciences that we want to celebrate. So in honor of Black History Month, all this week, Shortwave is featuring conversations with Black scientists and educators, people doing incredible work and pushing for a world where science serves everyone. Listen now to the Shortwave podcast from NPR. I want to take a second just to dig into the almost absurdity of some of the numbers that we see floating around Disney right now. Can you give us a sense of some of the numbers that show the scale of that disparity yeah. right now at Disney? Basically, it's like 200,000 people are employed by that company. Um, over 20,000 have been laid off. Wow. So that's a pretty significant bite 10. out of... Yeah, exactly. And of course, you know, overrepresented in that 20,000 will be the people at the bottom of the pay scale, the people who can least accommodate that. The share price is through the roof because, as you know, the stock market is through the roof in spite of the fact that the company is losing money, in spite of the fact that, that the revenues have been eviscerated because the well, they're not putting movies in theaters. Of exactly. course, they're losing money. So, a lot of so money. It, yeah. it shows you where shareholder primacy takes you. And it reinforces the idea that your share price can be 
totally unrelated to the well-being of the people inside of your company. Have you talked with low-wage Disney employees since the pandemic hit, since the layoffs hit? What are they saying and how are they doing? Yes, I have. Um, and yeah, they're terrified. They're really terrified because, you know, the folks I've talked to have things like asthma and diabetes and all the pre-existing conditions that come with A, poverty, and B, higher risk for COVID. So there was real fear that they'd be forced to go back to work. Um, and that didn't happen in California because Gavin Newsom sort of pushed back on Disney. But of course, Rodney Sand has said, come on into Orlando. And then there's all the uncertainty. But I, I mean, I know people who work from... 11 o'clock at night till 7 o'clock in the morning. And then they go home and they get their kids ready for school and then they clean the house and then they do the shopping and then they sleep for two or three hours, have dinner, help the homework, and go back to work. I mean, I would love to see any CEO do that one night and tell wow. me they shouldn't be paid better. You know, when I think about Disney and this image you're painting of Disney, that is one side of the company. But there is another side of the company that projects really well. Yes. You know, Disney, like a lot of other corporations, has just gotten a lot more woke in the last few years, in the last decade or two. And the conversation, particularly for entertainment companies like Disney, is, all right, what are you doing about racial equity and gender equity? And they do the thing where you can get prominent women and people of color in prominent positions, or you can make a movie where the lead is black. And those things are nice and they're good, but it sometimes feels as if they are, how, how can I just be blunt and say it, distractionary tactics. Yeah, yeah. From like the real dollars and cents of this stuff. How do you feel about that representative work that Disney is doing in the midst of this, this financial stuff? The high profile executive woman I refer to as girl washing, right? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, all you have to know is like, go really close to where the money is and ask yourself who's there. And you'll know all you need to know about fairness at that company. Because, mm. boy, the women and the people of color start to disappear the closer and closer you get to the center, mm. right? So mm. th these are big, deep structural problems, and it's great to make the Black Panther. There's no question that was a brilliant piece of... It um, changed the culture. Yes. It was a cultural reset. It was yeah. really important. It wasn't even just a moment. Most movies are moments, and this was so much bigger than that. But, like... I was pulling down the 1,400 times the median workers pay, and who's making the decisions about where the capital is allocated and why and how? And then you start to see, oh, it does get a little whiter and a little maler the more we work our way into the center of this decision-making body. And this is true at every company in America. That's not just Disney. So, you know, we were talking earlier in this chat about this shift in the corporate mindset from stakeholder primacy to shareholder primacy. And it might allow some listeners to think that there was a time before this stuff when got everything so bad. was fine. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that was also a time when people yeah. of color and women were totally shut out exactly. from all fair wages and wealth creation. Exactly. So in a way, yeah. is what you're asking for now, is it something that's actually never happened before? A basic financial security for yes. all working Americans, regardless of yeah. race or gender. The problem with looking back at 1956 or whatever, you know, a 95% sometimes income tax rate, you know, an 80-something percent corporate tax rate, and yet companies were thriving and building and doing really well. And arguably, a lot of the thriving that was happening then was happening because, for the middle class, because the middle class was just white and male. Just white. I yeah. mean, the, the, yeah. the pool of potential employees for any given job was way smaller, and so it was possible to pay everybody better. It was possible to supply 
health and pensions and all the rest of that. So as the world has gotten at least attempted to be fairer and more people have joined the workforce who should have always been in it, it's gotten harder to accomplish these kinds of things. Mm. But while that was happening, while Jim Crow was hopefully being addressed and we were trying to do better in employment and housing and all of that, companies were also shifting their ethos away from being just. So the society was going one direction, but corporations were going Mm. the opposite direction. So we have to be very careful of the temptation to say, oh, we have to go back to when it was good because it wasn't good. Good for who? Yeah. Good for who? It it wasn't good. You know, I mean, yes, my grandfather would never have allowed for a person working for him for a lifetime to retire without a pension. That would have been unthinkable to him. He also did not hire very many black people or women. Uh. And, you know, he oversaw and funded the making of Song of the South. So this is bad. Both <laughs> quickly. things can be true. So, yeah. yes, that's yeah. the problem that we need to kind of get to. We need to be able to, and this is true, actually, up and down and across everything related to our society right now. We need to be able to learn how to take in that this is a bad thing existing at the same time in the same person with this other good thing. And we have to be able to hold those both things in our heads at the same time. We can't, Walk and chew yeah. gum at the same yeah, time. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And juggle. Thanks again to Abigail Disney. She is a filmmaker, activist, and philanthropist. She also hosts the podcast All Ears with Abigail Disney. By the way, we reached out to the Walt Disney Company for comment. And they said that after the parks were closed because of the pandemic and before beginning furloughs, the company paid full salaries to workers who were unable to perform their duties for five weeks. Disney also told NPR that they kept providing full health care benefits even after the furloughs. When it comes to workers that were laid off, Disney told us that they paid severance to the employees and gave them access to outplacement services. In addition, the Walt Disney Company told NPR that executives took, quote, steep salary cuts last year, with the CEO foregoing 50% of his salary and the executive chairman foregoing his full salary. Again, that was all in a statement given to us from Disney. All right, listeners, don't forget this Friday, we are back in your earbuds with another episode. For that, I want to hear from you sharing the best thing that happened to you all week. You know how to do it. Record your voice on your phone and email the voice file to me, samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. All right, till Friday, thank you all for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.